So Exodus chapter 17, found on page 75 this morning. And so this is God's Word to us, and we know that it is living and it is active, and so we listen to it carefully. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord had commanded. And they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses, and they said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there. And they grumbled against Moses, and they said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock of Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and the people can drink. And so Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. He called, uh, he called the place Man- Man- Manasseh and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The Amalites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. And Moses, and jo- Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of the men and go out and fight against the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. Moses and Aaron and Hur went to the top of the hill. And as long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and they put it under him and sat on it. Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. And so Joshua overcame the Amalekite army and with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to remember, to be remembered, and make sure that Joshua hears it, because it will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it the Lord is my banner. He said, for hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this morning. We look forward to Nigel opening it up to us in just a few moments' time. Well, if you have a Bible handy, let's turn together to Exodus 17. This chapter that we've read really uh, intriguing chapter, maybe something you sort of think, I'm not sure what we're going to see here, but, but uh, I, I find this really, really uh, exciting to look at, and I think, I hope you, you'll see this as we look at it together. I, I don't know about you, but I really hate it whenever I am blamed for something 
that I didn't do. I heard a story on the radio this week of somebody who had sold a car, but the paperwork hadn't been completed fully by the buyer. And uh, so this car was still registered in the seller's name. And they were driving, uh, the new buyer had been driving all around London, uh, racking up all these congestion charges and parking fines and so on. And eventually the debt collectors were coming to this previous owner and she was absolutely distraught and incensed. You can just imagine how, how cross you would be in that circumstance. Maybe whenever you think about being blamed for things you didn't do, your mind goes back to school and some class detention that you had to sit in even though you knew it was Johnny and it wasn't you uh, and, and it was really, really frustrating. Your sense of justice just burns for that to be put right. It's, it's a slightly different thing, but, but sort of similar. Whenever we are reluctant to take the blame for something that we didn't do, that's very natural. It's not often that we would volunteer to pay the penalty for something that we didn't do. We, we, we naturally feel that those who committed the crime uh, should have to deal with the consequences. And it's because of that that some of those stories of people who, who volunteer to take the penalty for something that someone else did often have quite an impact on us. I remember as a, a young person hearing a story that, that struck me uh, in that sort of way. It was um, in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. It was a true story uh, conditions were, were brutal, and the, the prisoners were made to go on work parties and so on, building bridges and roads and so on in the jungle. And uh, at the end of one of these work parties, the prisoners were all brought back into the camp, and, and the tools were counted that they'd been using through the day. And it, it was discovered that one shovel had, had gone missing. There, there wasn't the number of shovels that there ought to be. And the camp commandant was an incredibly cruel man, and, and uh, he, he flew into a rage, and he was asking who was responsible for this, and, and he was threatening to kill all of the prisoners, and, and, and he was perfectly capable of doing that. And eventually, one of the prisoners stepped forward and said that it was his fault that the shovel was missing. The commandant uh, was incensed. He beat him to death there and then in front of the other prisoners. Uh, and the other prisoners, of course, then uh, went, uh, didn't, uh, uh, were able to escape his anger. Uh, and a little later, the, the, the tools were counted again, and it was shown that, that actually there was none missing. They had miscounted previously. So the prisoner was not guilty of the crime, and yet he had willingly stepped into the punishment so that his friends would be saved. I remember hearing that and thinking, my, I don't know if that I would have, I would have done that. doesn't seem easy for us to step into a punishment that doesn't belong to us. Well, if that's the case, if we think like that, then we must be thankful that as Christians, God is so very, very different from us. Because right at the heart of the Christian message, we must know, is, we, is that we have a God who takes the punishment on Himself that is due to us. We believe that Jesus had no sins of His own, and yet he died on the cross for sins. Whose sins? For, for our sins. The Bible is keen to get that message across to us again and again. And before Jesus even arrives, it prepares the way for that. So, for example, in Isaiah, where Isaiah speaks of the coming Messiah, he says this, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, 
we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, Jesus is the one who steps into the punishment that he does not deserve. And, and long before Isaiah wrote those words about Jesus, we see here in Exodus a similar message portrayed for us. God is the one who takes the punishment that was due to us, and he takes it on himself. That's what we're going to see this morning as we look at this chapter. One of the things that we've said about Exodus is that it is a picture book of salvation. We see in the experiences of the children of Israel uh, the, the pictures of what it is like to be rescued by God and to walk with God. And one of the things that we learn in this chapter today is that he is the one, God is the one, who willingly steps in to pay their debt. Remember what we've seen so far in this book. God has delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. He's done that the most powerful and miraculous way. The plagues come in Egypt, and eventually they, they culminate in the plague of the firstborn. There is death in the Egyptian home. There is salvation in the, uh, the, the Jewish homes. And then they are uh, set free, and, and they are cornered, as it were, against the Red Sea. And Moses uh, miraculously, miraculously uh, the, the Red Sea opens and, and uh, they, they travel through and, and the, the Egyptians then are killed. And they begin this journey down the Arabian Peninsula to, towards Mount Sinai. It's not an easy area to pass through. There's not uh, food and water uh, easily. And, and uh, God provides for them in the most amazing way. It, we saw that last time, a couple of weeks ago. He sends manna to feed his people in the desert. They're, they're learning that, that this is a God that they can trust with everything. Well, they should be learning that. Because one of the things that marks them out is that they begin to grumble, and they grumble really regularly and often. We saw that in chapter 16. Their, their complaints are generally directed against Moses, their leader, but it's pretty clear that they're criticizing God because, after all, he is the one who has led them in this way. Remember, at this stage, the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud are accompanying them by day and night, and so there is never a period when they do not know that God is with them constantly— and yet they are criticizing the God who is with them. And perhaps we should be slow to criticize them because we know that it's not beyond us to, to criticize God whenever things in our lives don't go the way that we want them to go, perhaps, or when things become difficult for us. We, we might not say it out loud, but we sometimes think that, that God's not doing a great job of looking after us. Well, the summary of their complaint is in verse 7. Is the Lord among us or not? Interesting, isn't it? Don't forget what's happening at this stage. There are indications of God's presence and His provision at every point. His presence is there by the, the pillar of cloud and fire. They, they can always look up and, and know that God is there with them. And yet they ask, is the Lord with us or not? And provision, at every stage, they're getting up every morning and they're, they're discovering that God has been true to his promise. The manna is there for them. They're gathering it up. They have exactly what they need. God has not let them down. And yet they say, is God among us or not? doesn't make much sense, does it? And yet it's true of us, isn't it? So often our, our grumbling is in spite of indications of God's presence and his provision. He is with us and he helps us. And yet we say, are you really with me, Lord? You're not doing exactly what 
I think you should be doing here. Are, are you really here? I think we recognize ourselves in these people, don't we? And, and that's part of why this story is here, to help us to see what we're really like. Well, this is the case in chapter 17, where they're, they're moving through the wilderness. They're, they're going from place to place, as God has directed them to do, as verse 1 says. And they come to a camp at a place called Rephidim. It's a place where they would have expected to find water and resources, but they get there and there's no water for them. And they quarrel with Moses and they say, give us water to drink. Verse 3, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Moses does the right thing. He turns to God. Verse 4, so Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. Now, we will return to this scene in a moment to see what happens next. But first, we want to say something about what happens at the end of the chapter. We're going to divide up what we're saying here was just with three very simple words. First of all, the word is judgment. Judgment is the, the first word. The, the, the second part of the chapter is, as John read from verse 8, tells us about a battle that happens with these followers of Amalek, the Amalekites. Israel would have trouble with the Amalekites right up to the time of King David. And uh, in some places, it seems that what was happening here is that as they were journeying down towards Sinai, the Amalekites were sort of raiding them and they were picking off some of the stragglers, as it were, on their journey. And what happens is that a, a force of Israelites meet with the Amalekites and there is a battle. And, and at the same time, Moses is on a mountain and he has the staff with him. And uh, the staff of God in his hands, we'll say a bit about that in a moment. And when he holds it up, the battle goes Israel's way. And when he lowers it, they begin to lo lose ground. And so Aaron and Hur, his, his brother and his brother-in-law, they, they, they help him. And uh, they have him sit on a stone and they hold up his arms. And so the, the, the staff is held aloft and eventually Israel is victorious. Now, now, maybe you've heard that story before, and you've heard it used to illustrate prayer. Uh, you know, the work of God goes forward in a secret work of prayer that shapes the outcome. As the, the hands drop, as the prayers drop, the, the, the work falters, and we can help one another as we help one another prevail in prayer. Maybe you've heard it applied in that sort of way. That's not inappropriate. It, it does sort of hint at that towards the end where it talks about a, a, a hands being lifted up uh, to the, the throne of God, a hand upon the throne of God. Uh, there is that sort of at least a hint of prayer, but actually prayer is not directly mentioned in this prayer, in this uh, passage, and, and the focus seems to be on the staff of God. What's the staff of God? Well, right way back whenever Moses was called, I met God at the burning bush. He, he was car carrying a, a shepherd's staff in his hand. Uh, it was just a standard staff. It would have been five or six feet long. We, we know it was from an almond tree. It was the sort of thing that a shepherd wouldn't have been without. He would have used it to poke sheep and, and uh, fend off wild animals and, and steady himself as he walked over the rough ground and so on. And, and, and Moses, you remember, was hesitant about going to meet with Pharaoh. And, and, and God tells him, what's that in your, your hand? He says, it's my staff. And he, he says, throw it down and it becomes a serpent, becomes a snake. Picks it up again, it's back in the staff. And, and that staff became quite important in the whole story of the plagues. And, and particularly, it was the staff that Moses, you remember the plague of the blood, where, where, where the, the, the Nile turned into blood, and, and, 
And, and Moses smashed the, the staff down on the river. It was a sort of an act of judgment, and the, the river became, uh, became blood. So, so it, was a, it was a picture, in a sense, of, of judgment. And that's what it is here in this battle with the Amalekites. As the staff of God is held aloft, God's judgment is falling on and these wicked people, the Amalekites, uh, through Israel. So the staff of God was something that was seen, in, in some cases at least, to bring judgment. Okay, let's go back to the first part of the chapter. People are grumbling. Moses appeals to God, and God directs him to do something very specific. You see, verse 5, the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. And this brings us to our second word, trial. So we've got the staff that represents judgment, and now we're going to see that there's a trial. I don't know if you've ever been in court or you've, you've watched some court proceedings live, or I'm sure most of us have on television. And there are some things that, that you automatically associate with a, with a courtroom. You know, you, you, the judge on the bench, the prosecuting, defending lawyers, the, the witnesses, the defendants. Uh, these are all things that if you saw them, so if you were up near the law courts in Belfast and you, and you saw someone running down the road with, with, running down the, road with, with uh, uh, the, the robes on and the, the, the curly wig thing, uh, you, you would uh, presume it on a whole pile of folders under their arm. You think, oh, well, I know what's happening there. They're, they're going to court. Uh, they're uh, about to get involved in some trial. And, and the scholars tell us that, that these indications that we're reading here in verse 5 are doing really the same thing. They're showing us that a trial is happening. This is like an ancient courtroom scene. Moses has in his hand the staff of God. It's a bit like the gavel, the judge's gavel. It's, it's, it's the, the thing that represents sort of judgment. It's described as the staff that struck the Nile, so it, it's got that judgment theme with it. And he's to parade before the people with who? With some of the elders. They, they are the, the witnesses in this case. And so if you were an Israelite and you saw these chaps walking past you, you'd be in no doubt that there was some sort of trial about to take place, some sort of judgment. Somebody was, was in trial. And of course, you would think, well, maybe somebody's going to be in trouble. You'd see the staff of God, this, this thing that spoke about judgment, and you'd say, uh-oh, somebody's going to get it. And if you'd any self-awareness, of course, you'd begin to think back over the last period and you'd, you'd think, well, somebody's in trouble. Maybe, maybe we're in trouble. After all, we've been grumbling about Moses, and really we've been grumbling about God. Maybe this staff is going to point at, at, at us, as it were. And then what happens is really, really surprising. God says in verse 6, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock. So, who is the defendant in this case, in this trial? Well, amazingly, it is God. The people are bringing their accusations against God, and God says effectively, okay, I'll stand in the dock. That's why we've called this God in the dock. Tim Keller preached a wonderful sermon on this. C.S. Lewis wrote a, a paper called God in the Dock. He says that one of the things that we tend to do as people is, is rather <clears throat> thinking that 
we are accountable to God. We tend to put God in the dark, and we, we make him accountable to us. Really crazy thing to do when you begin to think about it. But the, and the language of, of I will stand before you is really unusual. It's, it's indicating that, that uh, God is, is appearing before them as a defendant. And, and the staff of judgment, well, it does fall. But where does it fall? It falls where God is. God is on the rock, and Moses strikes the rock. Now, you remember what we're saying? We're saying that this is the picture book of, of salvation. It's a picture book of how God deals with people. They are learning that this God who has rescued them, who they are walking with, He is the one who takes the punishment that they deserve. He, he, he steps into the punishment that's due to them. He knows He is innocent, but he says, strike me. Just, just like the chap with the, in the prisoner of war camp saying, I'll take the blame so that others might go free. And that brings us to our last point, a blessing. A blessing. You see what happens? Water flows from the rock. Water gushes out. The people are satisfied. The animals are, are, are watered. The punishment falls on God, as it were, but the blessing flows to the people. It's a wonderful picture. And maybe you think, well, that's a bit fanciful to, to, to make that sort of a connection. But, but in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul talks about these days. And, and this is what he says, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. That's the Red Sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, that's the manna, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And then he says this, and the rock was Christ, and the rock was Christ. Do you, do you see, many, many, many years before Jesus ever came to Calvary, God is preparing the way for him to come. He's saying to, to his people, to, and he's saying to us, I'm the sort of God who, when you deserve punishment, I will step into it, and blessing will flow to you. Punishment for me, blessing for you. Sin from you, punishment to me. And one day, all that this pointed to would happen. Jesus would be on the rock, the rock of Calvary, and the judgment would fall on him, and the blessing would flow to us. You know the hymn, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself and lead, let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure, cleanse me from its guilt and power. You see, these people are, are learning that this is what God is like. And what a surprise this was to them. But it ought not to be a surprise for us because we know about the cross. We know that this is what our God is like. We are the ones who sin. He is the one who dies. We are the ones who rebel. He is the one who steps into our punishment. I don't know where you are today, what your week has been like, what you are feeling like, as it were, as you come into church today. 
Do you need encouragement today? Well, look at this God. This is what he's like. He is the one who takes your place so that blessings might flow to you. Do you need to be reminded of his character today? Have you been thinking? Maybe your week's been really difficult and you've been thinking just like these Israelites were. Is the Lord with us or not? It's not going as I had hoped it would. And you see here, whenever they ask that question, what does God point to them? What does God point them to? He points them to the fact that he is willing to take their punishment. And and you see, whenever we start to feel like that, what we look to is to the fact that Jesus has died for us. And having done that, he's not going to let you go. Do you need hope today? Have you come here today thinking, you know, I'm not sure if there's a God, but maybe if there is, I sort of need to get into his good book somehow. I, I, I need to clean up my act so that he might welcome me. Well, well, look at the God that we see here. Look at how good he is. He knows that you cannot do that. He knows your heart. He knows my heart. And yet he comes not to say to us, do a little better and then I will accept you. But, but here, I am going to take your place so that the judgment that's due to you, I'll soak up so that blessing can flow to you forevermore. That's what the gospel offers. That's what Christianity offers to us. The rock is Christ. Well, let's pray to him.